The following program contains material that may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. All right, um, so do you have your mic at all? Oh, I do. I need to fix that. I always forget that I need to go into the settings every time and change it. Ta-da! Oh my god, that's such a difference. Holy that's shit. Yeah, I want to hear it. <laughs> you'll hear, hear it. You'll difference. hear the difference in the podcast because it's recorded. I'm gonna leave it in there. Oh, you recorded it? It goes from like a <laughs> hey, it's me, Brittany, phone call to ta-da! Like just a crystal clear <laughs> voice. It's magic. <laughs> Welcome to Court on the Macabre. I'm Katie Adkins. I'm Kelly Reed. And it's super late at night, and buckle up, because I have a feeling we both wrote way too much. So I'm going to try to bust through mine when you're done with yours, but um, anyways, we are doing, our topic this time is based on a true story, which when you pick this topic, the way I interpreted it, find true stories that have been portrayed in uh, media and literature and film, and you compare the accuracies and inaccuracies between the two. Correct. Okay, cool. That's exactly what I was going for. Because that's exactly what I did. Okay, cool. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to be like, do you have a movie based on your life that's uh, based on a true story? Uh, Too Many Cooks, obviously, is based on a true story. Is that your real life? That's my real life. (laughs) Yeah, uh, fun fact, Katie Adkins did not die in the closet. She came back from the dead, and she has a podcast now. Mm -hmm. So, oh, what am I saying? We have short experience. We have shirts now. That's news. We do. And I'm wearing it right now. I can't wait to get mine. So the crop top, unfortunately, doesn't have a back print option, but all of the normal t-shirts do. And on the back of the normal t-shirts, it says in bloody handwriting, keep it creepy, with Ks, of course. I'm thinking I'm going to add an option to the website where you can have it on the back if you want or you can opt out of having it on the back because having it on the back does make the shirt $5 more expensive. So uh, if you want just logo in the front, you can get a cheaper shirt. Unfortunately, the crop tops don't have the option. is a flat fee. so And the medium larges are currently on back order because <laughs> I really wanted to order one, but I like loose-fitting tops so I gotta I gotta wait yeah I'm just gonna wait for mine and I'm probably just gonna steal Brendan's until then my arms are too fat and my shoulders are too broad for like an extra small small size so when it comes to crop tops at least so um for your topic you chose yeah changeling which I mentioned changeling I'm a little shocked they never mentioned why they titled the movie changeling I know the lore behind it as to why but I really expected them to talk about it in the film because they titled it that I, I mean I, th- I assumed it was just because you know they're trying to portray this one guy as something he wasn't but changelings but are fairies well but, um, so at least my understanding of a changeling is in Scottish and Irish lore I want to say predominantly Scottish what you do is changelings are fake children Basically, what they would do with very sick infants is if an infant got really, really sick, people would say, oh, it's not actually your kid. That's a changeling. And what you're supposed to do is put the sick baby, you find a fairy ring on the ground somewhere. You put the infant in the fairy ring overnight. If it dies, that means it was never your child. 
And if it lives through the night and becomes healthy, that means the fairies came back and switched the changeling out for your real child. And I think it was just a fucked up way of coping with, like, being unable to treat sick babies. Yeah, I I remember that, actually. I forgot about that. Yeah, here's your new, here's your original kid that was never sick. (laughs) And it Mm -hmm. was, and the idea was that the baby is raised by the fairies and lives a long, healthy fairy life. When really you're just a child killer. When really your baby just died. And you you put it out in the cold for an entire night to suffer. Yeah. As a baby, wouldn't you just like crawl away? Uh, I mean, not if you're an infant. As far as Changeling goes, so... I was thinking about it and how I came up with the topic was just, I remembered like the first night that we ever sat down at our apartment and started talking about murder on just chatting and on Twitch. And I think that was like the first one I ever told you about on stream. And then I kind of like went back to it and I was like, that would be a kind of fun topic. Cause that's a movie I've never seen. And, this would give me an excuse to watch it. And there's probably a lot of crazy stories that they've made movies out of. So that would be a lot of fun to play with. But anyway, I wanted to circle back to this one because it's still one of the craziest stories I've heard. And the movie doesn't go fully in depth with the guy. The, <laughs> the, the Oh, the sticker. farm guy? Yeah, they don't go into all of his craziness because I get it like the focus which I think is really cool the focus is on the mother it's on Christine Collins and they didn't change any names all the names are the same which I found out and I also think it's kind of cool also fun fact I think I told you that Angelina Jolie directed this movie she didn't it was Clint Eastwood so just throwing that in there but I guess she made a movie around the same time anyway neither here nor there I decided I'm going to start off with this guy's backstory because it's not what you hear about that much in the film. Gordon Stewart Northcott, born in Saskatchewan, that's in Canada, and he was raised in British Columbia, but he moved to Los Angeles with his parents in 1924, and two years later when he was 19 years old, he asked his father to purchase a plot of land for him in a city called Wineville, which is, you know... Also in California, pretty close to Los Angeles. You're telling me that um, dude was 19 and, years old? Um, when he got the farm. Got if the he farm moved, if he moved in 1924, that kid went missing in 1928, four years later. So he's like 22. Um, yeah, he's young. He is a young dude. But he did build a chicken ranch and a house um, with the help of his father and of his nephew, Stanford Clark. He basically convinced his sister to let him keep Sanford for help on the farm and said it would like grow his character and whatever. Of course he gets there. Sanford does. And that's when the abuse starts in. He's being like sexually abused, physically abused. It's not a good time for Sanford on this, in this fucking place. In 1928, a Canadian woman named Winifred Clark, who was his sister called the U S authorities to tell them that her son was kidnapped by her brother. I bet the kid called his mom, and then the mom was like, I'll call the authorities and, like, tell him he was kidnapped to get him back. Actually, the thing is, he he wasn't supposed to be there that long. Oh, okay, okay. So he was like, oh, come help me out for, like, a year. And now it's, what, two years later, Ah, and he's not contacting her. She can't get a hold of her son. 
and she's like, what the fuck? And so she reports him kidnapped because her brother's not calling her and her son's gone now and she has no idea what's going on with him. And she also has a daughter named Jesse Clark who says fuck this and goes to California herself to go check up on her brother. So at this point, Gordon is 21 years old. Jesse goes to the ranch and in the few days she stays, she finds out that her uncle is abusing her brother, that he was involved in something strange that she couldn't quite figure out. And then the uncle tries to attack her. And later during her stay during that week, when Gordon's asleep, Sanford comes to her and tells her about what's going on. And he tells her that he's killed boys on this ranch, that they've been driving around, picking up kids who are like on the street playing or going to the store for their parents or something and picking them up with the guises of like, oh, your family's been in a terrible accident or I have a job for you. And don't you want to take care of your family? Like using these manipulative lies to get these young kids into the car. And he was bringing Sanford with him because Sanford's 15 years old. And so these kids who see this man inviting them into their car, I think under any other normal circumstances would be like, uh, no, but they see this kid in the car and they're like, well, if he has a kid, he must be telling the truth. So they would get in this car with him and Sanford and Gordon would just abuse these children. Like he would molest them and rape them. And then when he got bored with them, he would kill them. That's Which a is, classic box girl mistake. It's fucked up. And it only gets worse. Um, so anyway, Jesse comes back to Canada a week later, which, I mean, at least she got home. Um, and she informs the American consul that, you know, Northcott's committing all of these crimes. Um, the consul then wrote a letter to Los Angeles Police Department detailing Jesse's complaint. But there was initially some concern over an immigration issue. And so the LAPD contacted immigration services um, instead of just going after Northcott. Because he might so not have been an American citizen? Yeah, that's what they're concerned about. LAPD is like, wait a minute. You're telling us this murderer that's attacking children is from Canada? And he, he might have immigrated here illegally? We got to get on this. Wrong focus, guys. I guess they were trying to see if it was in their jurisdiction, but still what they could have done was detained him and then called Canada and been like, come pick up your trash. Well, the thing like- is, <laughs> LAPD completely brushed it off on to the immigration services. So it wasn't the cops that found him. It's two immigration service inspectors. I'm so done. I'm so done. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? I can't. I, yeah. Oh, no, I hate cops. Um, They've, the immigration service inspectors cut the ranch and take Clark Sanford into custody. But Northcott, he sees the agents driving up the long road to his ranch. And before he runs away, he tells Clark to stall them or else he would shoot him from the tree line. So Clark is staying at this ranch, just stalling these immigration service workers while... Uh, Gordon's running away oh. and he just keeps running. So finally, once it's like two hours, two hours later, Clark feels he's safe enough that Gordon's far enough away and that these agents can protect him. So he tells them that Gordon fled into the trees and tells them about all these crimes that he's committed. 
On September 15, 1928, Sanford told investigators that his uncle kidnapped him, physically and sexually abused him. He also said that Gordon had forced him to watch the abuse and murders of Walter Collins, Nelson, and Lewis Winslow, and some other boys. Okay, so he um, named all of those names. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he said those are the names he used. He used the two brothers' names, Nelson and Lewis, and Walter Collins. And then he also uh, mentioned a Latino boy from La Puente, blanking on his name. I'll probably find it a little later. So he tells him about the abuse and murders of Walter Collins that Gordon committed, tells him everything that I just told you, that he would keep them till he got bored. Um, and then he would lead them into the incubator room to see hatching chicks and kill them with an axe. So um, my question for you at this point, sorry, I'm going to randomly interject questions because I did just watch the fun. movie. In the yeah, movie, the boy was forced to kill kids. Is that also true? Or was he yeah. just forced to yeah. watch? No, he was. So that's part. I probably just glossed over it, which is probably why you missed it. But yeah, he would force him to participate. Yeah, no, it, he didn't take part of the molestation that I could find any record of, but he took part in the killing. Um, like he was okay. forced. To. And the fucked up part about this is there was uh, a point in time where Gordon's mother comes to visit. And this is when he has Walter. And Walter's the only boy he has at that point. The whole time that the mother's there, uh, Gordon's trying to keep his mom away from the chicken coop, doesn't want her to find out, but she eventually kind of bullies her way in there and sees Walter. And uh, that's Sarah Louise is his mother. And so she sees Walter and her reaction isn't, oh my God, what are you doing to these children? It's that boy is going to be able to ID you. Like you work at the grocery store close to his house. He's all over the news. His mother is looking for him. You're going to have to kill him. You can't keep him. And so the mother said that Gordon's mother says this. And then she tells Sanford that he has to participate in the killing of Walter Collins with both her and Gordon so that the three can't implicate each other, that they're all safe if they all take part of it because they're all going down if they say what happened. No wonder this guy's a psychopath. His mother's a psychopath. Tip of the iceberg. Like, this shit is insane. This guy is bonkers. And he's had, like, his life growing up is no picnic not that that excuse anything but it just unraveling this rope is just a wild ride let's see sanford told the police that they could find the graves near the near the chick near the chicken coop for the winslow brothers and for walter collins two graves were found but the full bodies were not there only pieces of that part the movie got right there were bits and pieces of bone that made it hard to identify who the children were so they also found axes and other farm equipment that had human hair and blood on them. Several bones were also scattered across the ranch. Pathologists determined to be male children. Inside the house, a book checked out to one of the Winslow boys was found. And also more letters to their parents were written. But nothing that could be directly attributed to Walter Collins. He has so much shit all over his farm. And so Sanford names those uh, four boys, but they say with the remains that they found, it's up to 20 kids that were on this farm at some point in time. So on September 20th, 1928, five days after Sanford tells them, Gordon was arrested in British Columbia. So he made it all the way back to Canada and they arrested his mother 
in Alberta. They arrested his December. mother. I'm sorry, you're cutting out a little bit yeah. here and there, but you said they arrested, oh. he made it back to Canada and they arrested his mother. Yeah, they arrest Gordon, British Columbia, and they arrest his mother in Alberta, both in Canada. Um, in December, the police took Northcott back to his ranch in an attempt to get more information. And while there, he verbally confessed to five murders, including the Winslow brothers, Sir Collins, and the Latino boy named Alvin Gothia. Later that day, Northcott only admitted to one side in a written confession, and it was the murder of Alvin. He, what is that word I'm missing? It's recounted? Like when you take it back, what you said? Yeah. Receipt. Oh my God, I knew it, and now I don't. Hold on. (laughs) Rescinded? Yeah, that's, I Is it rescinded? I, that's what I thought. I don't think so. I think it is recounted. Reca- re- re- recanted. 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 Oh, my God. Recanted. <laughs> We're really smart. Yeah. I promise. We do like so – we have degrees. I swear. Yeah, that's really sad. And it's like – well, I just blanked on it. I mean, I hear it so much in other podcasts that I listen to, and it's just like, you know, it's the tip of your tongue, and it's right there. I almost thought redacted, but that's in writing. So also in December, Northcott's mother confessed to the murder of Walter Collins. She said that she delivered the final blow to the boy and then buried him in a hole near the chicken coop. And the thing is, I don't know why this was left out of the movie. I guess it's just so much information and they really didn't want to take away from Christine Collins, her point of view about the whole thing. Yeah, the Um, movie was really about how poorly treated this woman was versus how horrific this murderer was. I mean, it makes sense, too. She wouldn't know all of this. God, that movie made me hate society as a whole. So Christine Collins was actually admitted to an insane asylum? That was one of my questions. Well, wait, I'm getting to that. Oh, you're getting to that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm getting to that. Yeah, so I want to go through, like, all of I'll save all questions and comments till the end. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The thing is, I wanted to focus on the stuff that the movie didn't, just so we can have, like, a full understanding about what this movie is really referencing. Okay. Because there's a lot of craziness and backstory to this that wasn't included that I just feel like is super interesting. Gordon Northcott's trial begins in January of 1929. Northcott fired several defense attorneys and then proceeded to defend himself, which you always know is a step in the right direction. (laughs) Yep, they did keep that in. He decided, I'm going to take care of him myself. A real Bundy move. I guess, well, I guess Bundy copied him. Anyway, so he admitted to abusing young boys because he loved them. And this genius decides that his mother, who's already admitted to killing Walter Collins, he's going to bring her up to as a witness to testify for him. She's obviously a good judge of character. So this is where it gets even crazier. He invites his mother up to stand where she claims she's actually his grandmother because her husband raped their daughter. And now who he thought was his sister, Winifred, who Sanford, he thought was his nephew and actually his brother. That's his mom. She took that under oath yeah. thing really seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So she's just like, none of this is his fault. We're all just fucked up. We're just inbred, fucked up Canadians. Oh my yeah. God. So Sanford was her brother. This whole thing is just insane. Northcott also claimed to have an incestuous relationship with his grandmother, who he thought was his mother, and his father had molested him. And that's his defense. My defense is, is that, that my family is insane. My defense is that my family is incestuous. You can't. <laughs> you can't punish me. I'm inbred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? That's what we need on a t-shirt. <laughs> I'm just 
stupid because my parents are cousin, sister, brother fuckers. So Neela's <laughs> defense was rather odd, and it was obvious he wasn't a lawyer. Sarah Louise also proved herself not to be a credible witness because she's on the stand, and only thing she kept saying is that she would do anything for Gordon. She basically was saying, I could be telling the truth. All of this could be lies. I'm going to say whatever is going to help Gordon. Yeah. What an idiot. That's the worst thing she could have done for him. It's a whirlwind of fuckery. Okay, so that trial's in January. February 8th, an all-male jury convicts Northcott for first-degree murders of the Winslow brothers and another anonymous victim. Judge George R. Freeman sentenced him to death by hanging. Um, And although he was convicted and sentenced to death, the families of his victims didn't have closure because there was no ability to find any intact bodies. Other families out there who would just never know if their kid made it out or if they were ever kidnapped by him to begin with or if those were their bones that they found in the chicken coop. So Northcott was hanged on October 2nd, 1930. And shortly after his execution, the Wineville chicken coop murders were finally put to rest after deciding, the citizens just decided, we're just going to change the town's name entirely. So there is no Wineville, California anymore. It's now Miraloma. But did they really and make so, good enough wine to call themselves Wineville? I don't even know. If they did, I'm... California. Well, here's the thing. They're, what's their name now? Miraloma. Yeah, we don't hear that. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not a sommelier, but when I think of wine, I don't think of that town. So maybe their wine wasn't that good. Maybe not. I mean, maybe at the time when they <laughs> maybe it wasn't the time. Maybe it was in 1920. I don't know. Um, so I got most of my sources from this thing called the Crime Museum, which is actually pretty cool. I want to double back because that's everything that's happening in the background of this movie, Changeling. Which I'm sure if you have been listening this whole time, you've probably figured out that Changeling is about the mother of Walter Collins. Christine Collins, and everything that she went through when her son disappears one day. In 1928, California was on the rise. Um, They had the agriculture and movie industry just kind of booming, and it's a metropolis. But a string of child abductions and murders in the small town of Wineville um, is changing the city, which we know now was Gordon Northcott. So on March 10th, 1928, Walter Collins disappears. Um, He was nine years old, and he's last seen by a neighbor. In the movie, he's left at home, which kind of leaves it to your imagination of did he go for a walk or something? Um, But it's also hinted at in the movie that they were supposed to go to the movies that day, and she couldn't make it because she was called into work. And so what they're saying is Christine gave him money to go to the movies by himself. I thought she promised to go with him tomorrow and to wait for her. So she did so she did in the movie. Okay, but, but in real life, she might not have. But in real life, it's there's a couple stories that say that she gave him money to go to the movies by himself. But there's also a bunch of neighborhood kids that he might have left the house to go exactly. play with. You never know. Exactly. It really, he just, at some point, he left the house. And also, um, they don't mention this in the film, but his father um, was actually in Folsom Prison at the time for a robbery which we'll come back in later. So the Los Angeles Police Police Department, LAPD, they're already under investigation at this time for several corruption scandals and their inability to locate Walter Collins 
was also another embarrassment. So this is during like mobster times where robberies are rampant. And so violence is on the rise. And LAPD's response to this was to get a chief of police who is just like, violence, violence, violence. This is how you fix the problem. Like he had a squad that he just gave guns to. His solution for getting rid of the mobster issue was just to go out and start killing people. You didn't arrest them and have a trial for them. You went out and you shot these people who were suspected to be mobsters. This is JJ What's-His-Face? Um, yeah, JJ What's-His-Face. It's not JJ Jameson, <laughs> but it's like JJ Jameson. It's Davis. What? JJ Davis. JJ Davis. Davis. Oh, I thought it was like yeah. a J. Jonah Jameson, like a triple J yeah. situation. <laughs> but James Davis. Um, but yeah, that, that was his response. He's just like, we're just going to go out and start killing people to get rid of this issue. But the problem was, there's also corruption in the police force. So they could choose which people they were going to kill and which people they were. And then if people found out, then they'd be targets in some way, shape, or form. Because the police had the power to do that. They could just go out with their gun squad and start killing people. The Walter Collins case pops up and they're not able to find him. So these town who's already upset, I mean, the city that's already upset with how the LAPD is handling things. They're also seeing this boy going missing and they're not able to find him. They're just like, what the fuck are you good for? You know, what do we need you for? The police chief is under a lot of pressure to solve the case. They looked along Lincoln Park Lake, um, which they was like where the, the where Walter was last seen. But they weren't able to find anything. Colin's father thought that former prison inmates were responsible for his son's disappearance um, in an attempt to get revenge of some sort. So because he was in a position in the prison's cafeteria and was responsible for reporting infractions and whatever. So he thought his enemies were after his son. Police didn't find anything on that. Several tips come in. but Nothing turns out to be useful. But then in a gas station in Glendale... Richard Strothers, he reports seeing a dead body wrapped in newspaper in the back of a car when a foreign couple stopped to ask for directions. So they had an accent. A man named C.B. Staley followed the couple when they left the gas station. And then the couple stopped for a few moments in front of the police station and then sped out of town, losing the guy who was following him. However, when the police showed up to interview Strothers and Staley, they show them Walter Collins's photo and they both say that that was the dead boy in the back of the car. Um, and then there were other tips coming in at the same time um, about a couple traveling across the state with a boy who's begging them to let him go. They have a lot of things to go on, but they don't. I guess this couple could have been um, what's his face farm dude and his mom or yeah. grandmother, I Great guess. Mom. Mama, yeah. whatever. With the Canadian accents. Yeah. Mima, Ma, A. That's what, I mean, that's what we can assume. They're both saying that it was Walter in the back of that car. And everyone's claimed they've seen this kid. Yeah. Um, so Walter's disappearance wasn't the only one. There was also Nelson and Lewis, who we talked about earlier. They were 10 and 12 when they went missing on their home um, on their way home. And then their parents received strange letters from them, from them which is probably some of the letters that we talked about earlier that were found at uh, Gordon's ranch. Okay. So yeah, they got those strange letters, but the first said that they were heading to Mexico and that they planned to stay missing as long as they can to be famous, which was not in this boy's, these boys character at all. They just, the parents got these letters and were like, these can't be from our son. These are really weird. But 
obviously it was something that Gordon was writing for them. Um, the police don't connect any of these disappearances. Yeah, and along the way, they're getting all these tips. These strange letters are coming in. These boys are missing. And then between these cases, they find a headless Latino boy in La Puente. There's a bunch of little boys going missing, a dead one found, and none of these connections are being made. There's even a neighbor complaining about a man mistreating a boy at his poultry farm. It's right there. It's not like he was being very sneaky about this. He was in plain sight picking up these boys and neighbors saw him. People saw him doing this stuff and he still didn't get caught. In 1928, Illinois police pick up a boy who told them that his name was Arthur Kent. At first, he would say that that his father abandoned him. Um, so they placed him with a temporary family. And eventually he tells them that his real name is Walter Collins and that he wasn't telling them what his real name was for a while because they didn't, he didn't want them to find out who his father was and he was trying to protect him. I guess that's, that's, that's the story he went with. So Illinois police contact California, send photographs of the boy, and then send Arthur to Los Angeles. The LAPD decides, oh, it's Walter. We found him. And so they call Christine, his mother, and they're just like, hey, we found your boy. Like, he's been missing for a couple months at this point. And so, of course, Christine is elated, goes to meet him, and then immediately tells them, this is not my son. This is not him. And somehow the captain at the time, J.J. Jones, which is who you were thinking of, because we have James Davis, the chief of police, and now we have J.J. Jones, who's the captain. J.J. Jones, the captain. That's who I was thinking of. Yeah. The Triple J's. He somehow convinces Christine, this is her son, and you just need to try him out for a while. That's the phrasing he uses, is try him out for a while. Maybe he's your son. And she's like, well, no, that's, that's not true. But there's all this press there, and he's demanding photos. She's like in this terrible situation all of a sudden that she doesn't know how to handle. And keep in mind, this is in the 1920s. Women didn't have a voice. They were just emotional maniacs. So she's just stuck in this terrible situation. But three weeks after their reunion, Christine brings the boy back to the, back to the police station. And she brings with her the dental records and signed statements from multiple people who all knew Walter and say that this guy, this little kid, Arthur, isn't him. But Captain Jones decides... I'm not going to listen because I want this case closed and I want the LAPD to have a win because we have so much bad press already. And so he just claims she's a lunatic, is trying to get the state to take care of her child. And she was just trying to embarrass the, the police department because she hates the LAPD like so many other people. And so he throws her into a psychiatric ward in Los Angeles County General Hospital on what is called a Code 12, which allowed police to get rid of troublemakers by throwing them into psych hospitals if they were having somebody that went against what they wanted they could just throw them into a psychiatric hospital with this code 12 thing and of course the doctors there are like well they're the police they know better there they go they're just in the system now christine collins wasn't gonna stand for this and also around this time like right when she's thrown into the psych hospital is when all this stuff about gordon comes out and so she gets out of the hospital fights back actually gets code 12 taken care of like she gets a lawyer to go in there which is in the film she goes in there cleans out all the code 12 patients in the psych hospital which is no longer a thing because of this they got rid of the chief of police for not handling this case well they get rid of the captain for not handling this case correctly 
they start looking into the abuse of power by the LAPD and they get rid of this code 12 nonsense. Thank God. Um, yes. I was really hoping that was real. Thank goodness, because they were not handling things correctly. They just wanted to be able to do what the hell they wanted and then get rid of the people who got in their way. Um, but the movie really goes into Christine Collins's point of view on everything from, you know, losing her son to having this boy and claim to be her son, who he obviously isn't. And it turns out that boy, the reason that he did this, the reason that he claimed that he was Walter Collins is because he knew that Walter Collins was missing in L.A., and he knew that his favorite actors were in L.A. He wanted to get to Los Angeles so that he could be an actor and he could meet his favorite actors. It was like a certain cowboy star, right? Yeah, it was Tom Mix. <laughs> Tom Mix. He was obsessed with Tom Mix, had to meet him, and he wanted to be an actor. So he's just like, I'm going. And then the fucked up thing is later, he tells the press, like, she knew I wasn't her son. Like, she's to blame in this, too. I shouldn't be the only one getting in trouble. Of course like, she knew he wasn't her son. She said the whole like, time. Boy, she literally spent this whole time fighting you on this. Like, yeah, of course she knew. We all knew she didn't know. The police were just being the crazy psychos. Uh, so in the movie, when his real mom shows up to take him away, he said that the police made him pretend to be Walter Collins. And so yeah. I was like, did this so kid ever claim that? Not that I can find. Yeah. I found, what I found was that he actually tried to put it on Colleen or Christine. Sorry. He kept trying to put it on her to protect the police, I'm guessing, because the police gave him what he wanted. It doesn't make sense for him to put anything on Christine because she from the get go was like, this isn't my kid. Yeah. So that but makes yet he tries. No I guess he's on the, he's on the cop side because they are giving him incentives to stick with them. I just thought that was interesting in the movie that they tried to allude to the fact that he might have been baited by the police to pretend to be Walter. Mm -hmm. I think that's fabricated to make the movie more interesting and make the bad guy even more of a villain, but yeah. I think he went to L.A. of his own accord, but that the police incentivizing him to keep the lie was definitely part of him staying in it. Um, also, at the end of the movie, and this is something I cannot confirm, at the end of the movie, they, they try to say that there's some hope that Walter is still alive, that he made it out with these other boys who escaped, which I think is just to kind of bring some light to this otherwise very dark movie. But as far as I can tell, there's multiple accounts of them actually admitting that they did kill Walter. Well, not Gordon himself, like he only admitted it once and then recanted it. But his mother and Sanford both say that he was one of the boys that was killed. When I saw that part of the movie at the very end, my first thought was like, there's no way this part's real. Like this was fabricated for the film in order yeah. to have it be like a slightly uplifting ending, I guess. I mean, the whole movie was really supposed to be about Christine and her, like, struggle, and it's, it's about her. So it's about how at the end, you know, because she's the main character, you want to see her with some hope and happier at the end. Yeah, you want her to have a little bit of light in her life. Pretty Hollywood in that sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the story of uh, the true story behind Changeling. And I actually do recommend watching it. I didn't watch it until today. <laughs> um, <because laughs> we knew the real story. I, we just didn't, didn't know the movie. 
Well, that's the thing is I didn't I didn't realize I once I because I saw the the trailer for it before I ever heard of Gordon Northcott, you know, and I was just like, eh, this doesn't look like a movie. I'm not really into period films. Um, <laughs> I love period and, films. How dare you? Sorry. But then um, I listened to that podcast on My Favorite Murder, which you should go listen to that. It also has some extra tidbits about Gordon Northcott and actually goes oh. into a whole other side of him, which I haven't even touched on. He would focus a lot on Latino um, young boys because people weren't looking for them as often, sadly. So um, I actually heard the story from um, the series Unsolved. Oh, really? So it's technically an unsolved case because his body was never confirmed. And so that's where I first heard this whole story and learning all about it. And it was a lot of just the basics. And it starts off with, you know, Christine Collins and whatnot. And there was another case that was kind of similar that happened in the South, but wasn't quite as big of a deal. Well, now you have my take on it. Yeah. You decided to do Capote, right? Yes. Okay. So I decided to do Capote. And the reason why I picked Capote is for multiple reasons. Capote came out in 2005 and uh, we were 13 in 2005. And that was the very first time I watched a movie that was a movie my parents would like that I also liked, if that makes sense. Like I'm a kind of like a I'll watch cartoons for life kind of girl. And I wasn't My parents were really crazy into murder and true crime. Like, my parents were always obsessed with murder. They were always reading horror novels. They were always watching CSI, Law & Order, Cold Case. Just anything with murder, they were, like, on it. Anything with mystery, they were obsessed. So that's where you got it from. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. And growing up, I was like, that's boring adult stuff, and I don't want anything to do with it because I don't want to be like my parents because they're just boring old people. So I actually actively, like, wasn't interested in a lot of that stuff until late middle school, and Capote, the movie Capote, really helped change all of that for me. It had one... It didn't win Best Picture. I think it was nominated. But... uh, It was nominated, and I think they won... um, Philip Seymour Hoffman did win Best Actor for the role. Yeah. We used to watch the Oscars religiously. We don't so much anymore because it's a sham, but whatever. That's a whole other topic. But... I don't trust the Academy and their judgment. It's whatever. It's neither here nor there. After we finished watching the Oscars that year, my mom was like, I got Capote. We're watching it because my parents are obsessed with true crime. Truman Capote's book in Cold Blood literally created the true crime genre that we know of it today. It's a story that we read and we're interested and we want to know it in a narrative way versus like, here's some statistics Here's some pictures and some dead people and, like, a very basic, non-detailed article about a crime. I read the book before I saw the movie because it was in my high school's summer reading. And that was, like, one of the books that I I started reading it and I 
latched onto that. Well, that's dark. and that was well because it's the way that it's told is just so insane. And I mean, they kind of do it in the movie too. They focus more on Truman, I think, whereas he's really just a narrator in the book. I don't know if you've read it or not. I but, unfortunately um, haven't. So um, I picked Capote because I really liked the movie, and then I felt like a fraud because I hadn't read the book. <laughs> but I, I did. But I did find articles and whatnot that express the fallacies that exist within the book. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. There's also the way that he tells it. He tells it like it's a fiction story, which I think is part of why people were so enamored with it. Right. Because it was true. But he told it like it was fiction. Like the first first chapter, it sounds like a fictional retelling of what actually happened. I just felt like as a... uh, paranormal true crime podcast that we kind of you know combine the two a lot I just felt like this was so appropriate and this movie was just like a big point in a way without e- without me even realizing it in my life it was the very first time I'd ever watched a film like that and found it truly so interesting and there's so much Rewatching it now as an adult and remembering how I watched it as a kid are so different and one of the main things I noticed as I rewatched it, and I don't know what this says about me as a child. I get that I was a very emotionally distant child, but like, fuck, dude. I apparently have become a lot more empathetic as an adult, which is interesting because usually it's the other way around. Children are way more empathetic than adults are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but apparently as a kid, I, knew, I didn't give a fuck. For all of you who have seen the movie Capote or read In Cold Blood, I'm just going to, first of all, for all of you who haven't and don't know what we're talking about, I'm just going to tell you right now, In Cold Blood recounts the murders of the Clutter family, a husband, wife, and two children in their Kansas home, and how the suspects, Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, were caught, convicted, and eventually executed for the shocking crimes. So these two dudes broke into this home, hoping to steal some money. One of them just snapped and murdered the whole family. It was not premeditated. They did not go in there intending to kill the family. It's just what ended up happening. And there's a lot behind that depending on which resource you get it from. It's different depending from the book, movie, and even from Richard himself because you'll find out later. In the movie, it's very much depicted as Richard very much insisted on there being no witnesses and then they have and then Perry goes into this whole telling of how he killed the family and they show him doing so but these two dudes in cold blood just murdered a whole fucking family and at the end of the day they only got like maybe fifty dollars when they originally went in thinking that this family was hiding ten thousand dollars so the difference in watching it though as a kid and adult so these these dudes you show them you I mean you mostly see Perry Perry is the one who's very much focused on the film they don't really focus on Dick much at all but they show the hanging at the end and uh that was the very first time as a kid I had ever seen anyone be hung I remember as a kid being like good I'm glad feeling no sympathy not giving a shit because these people murdered a fucking family and they yeah, showed it. Yeah. Something that's a little different from the book and the movie, too, is, like, I watched the movie and I had the same feeling as you. It was like, fuck them. Well, as an adult, though, fuck. this time around, I actually felt for him this time, which was weird. And it's weird having felt that watching it again, knowing how my original instinct was like, no, fuck them. And I'm like, what changed in me? What the What happened? You're more forgiving now. But one thing that the movie absolutely does do, and this is something that the book is, like, 
like absolutely famous for is how it shows the humanity in the men who commit the crime. They do, it does a really great job of showing how these aren't just monsters hiding in the closet who are just going to jump out and stab you with a knife with like no emotion, true psychopath. They are people who have had a life and they have family and they have things that they do to express themselves and they have people in their lives who they have loved and all of this stuff that you just don't want to think of or try to think of when you think of someone who murders an entire family in cold blood. And so in the movie, they very much humanize Perry with the fact that he's an artist and always drawing, whether he's drawing portraits of people or animals. And he even keeps a self-portrait of himself in his cell where he doesn't look like a scary serial killer or he wasn't a serial killer. He was just, you know, a mass murderer. But he doesn't look like a scary killer. But instead, he just looks like a sad, tired man just waiting to die. And at one point, Truman Capote hires a fashion photographer to photograph the men to help kind of show that they're people. Because the only photographs we have otherwise is a mugshot. They, like, show off their tattoos and, like, you look at their bodies a bit more. And the second I saw that in the movie this time around, I googled it. And sure enough, those photos are so similar to the ones in the movie. Like, the guys they casted are actually very similarly looking, which is not something that usually happens in reenactments. As we see in Changeling, where Angelina Jolie looks nothing like 40-year-old okay. Christine Collins. Angelina being cast as anything in a reenactment is just not fair to the person that it's based on like i was getting so distracted at points because i was just like staring at her lip yes Ooh. i don't find angelina julie attractive i get that she's objectively attractive and that people do find her attractive i like don't see her face i just see lip she's got all i see lip. i see is lip and i get that she's a gorgeous woman but i for whatever reason can't see it and I don't know why and I I don't think she's unattractive at all but there's just something about her where I'm like you're not human but I know but I know (laughs) you're human but there's something about you where like she doesn't fit in any time period she just like is her thing she's her own thing she's best as Maleficent because she has such she is looks like a fantasy creature she is actually very fantastic she's actually not distracting as maleficent and it's probably because the prosthetic cheeks the prosthetic cheekbones really help fill the rest of her face your look it's really a good look for her but basically in the film when they do the photo shoot you see these two men become more at ease as they realize they're being represented as people and not criminals because they're expected to be treated a certain way. But really, oh, oh, I just realized I didn't say what year this all fucking takes place. So the murder happened in 1959 and this whole investigation goes from 1960 until the eventual execution in 1964. So one thing that the movie does specifically that I found really interesting, and again, this is something we will never truly know, is how these interviews went. In the movie, you know, it's very clear that Capote doesn't actually care about these men. He just wants his story. But through trying to do everything he can to relate to Perry and get Perry to talk to him because he sees Perry as someone who can be 
sympathetic and someone who can open up and be manipulated. He does everything he can to try to get the story out of him to then eventually feeling for him as a human. He's humanizing him, not seeing him as just a story, a dollar sign, a killer. The movie overall is kind of about his struggle between I'm doing this because I need my story, I need my book, I need to be famous, I need that dollar sign, versus I do actually feel bad about how this man is totally going to be hung for this crime because there's no way he's getting off. Just kind of feeling bad about exploiting him. And there is this actual one scene that, for whatever reason, stuck with me. And it's the scene where Capote is in a grocery store buying baby food. Because Perry was starving himself, which the uh, investigator said that he didn't have the right to kill himself because he murdered a family. But he bought baby food to try to force feed or encourage Perry to eat. But while he's in the grocery store, there's this little boy who just gives him this gross stank face. And he pulls his toy gun on him and pretends to shoot him. At first, I thought it was an odd thing to write into the script. And, of course, I was distracted by the gun because, naturally, I had that exact same toy gun when I was a kid because it was my dad's in the 60s and I used to keep it in a drawer because it scared me because it looks like a real gun I used to be scared that one day I'd pull it out and play with it and it would like turn into a real gun and I'd like kill myself or kill someone like I was terrified of this toy gun because it was silver with a white handle and just looked like a real gun to me it wasn't painted orange like a nerf gun you know Because it's from the 60s, and back then they didn't care about stuff like that. But I kind of saw it as how Capote looked at this kid with a gun and in a weird way saw Perry. Like this innocence within this man who did something so horrible. Like this kid is pretending to kill Capote in a grocery store with a toy gun. And I Mm -hmm. felt like in a weird way it was like highlighting like the conditioned of violence within society and normalizing guns. And I mean, I could be super reading into it, but that's also because I went to film school and this is all we fucking did. That's all you do in film school. That's all you do in film school is just look at tiny moments like that and be like, what does it mean? Yeah. (laughs) I just saw that and was like, I know in this movie, in Capote's mind, he sees this tiny boy to grocery store with this toy gun and just sees Perry. Weird, childlike purity of humanity and innocence in this actual killer in this small child. It's just weird. And I just really wanted to highlight that because I don't know. I digress. Um, in Cold Blood, the book made Truman Compote, at the time, the most famous writer in America. Interestingly enough, he never finished another book afterwards. And I forgot about that. Yeah, he never finished another book afterwards. And a lot of people have a lot of questions about that. And I feel like because of that... This movie, they threw in a lot of fabricated stuff to fill in emotional gaps of what he was going through through the writing process of In Cold Blood. I feel like they wanted to use In Cold Blood as a reason for his eventual alcoholism that led to his death, kind of how he never was able to write or do anything afterwards. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's never actually confirmed in real life whether or not writing this book was as traumatic (coughs) as it might have been. We don't actually know, which really sucks, because he never said. The epigraph of his last unfinished work does read, More tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. 
and he died in 1984 due to complications of alcoholism. That being said, um, here are things that I personally believe were added to the movie for flavor, and then I want to go into fallacies within the book, and then things that actually happened. In the film, Truman Capote did everything he could to get Perry Smith and Dick Hickok a proper lawyer and representation in hopes for not necessarily getting them off. It's very clear in the movie he knows he can't get them off, but he wants more time in order to interview and get the story out of them. He's really doing it for himself in order to get his story, but there's no real evidence that that ever happened. Like, he did not go out of his way to try to get representation or a lawyer for them. None of that. They super, super highlighted Capote's manipulation of Perry. But at the end of the day, no real friends were actually made during these interviews. He just really, from the get-go, was just trying to get his story and was just doing what he could to get it. The movie makes it look like he and Perry were, like, super fucking close. Like, almost best friends. And one thing that I will also comment on later that really pisses me off is a romantic involvement, which I'm just, I feel like it's tasteless, and I'll get into that later. I guess I missed that. Yeah, no, there's multiple times where people in the movie are like, people think you fell in love with him. Did you? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I don't know. And it's just not a thing. Not ever was a thing. No, 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 no. I um, guess when I heard that, I I thought it was like not a romantic kind of love, but like a. It does not come across as romantic love in a way. It does come off as more familial, but I feel like the movie being made in two thousand five, and Truman Capote was an openly gay man. He was very, very openly gay. I feel like they were throwing that in there for flavor, and I really don't like that. And I really feel like it was unnecessary and completely tasteless. For Harper Lee, his best friend, to be like, did you fall in love with him? And for him to be like, I don't know. I'm just like, no, no. Yeah, like a schoolgirl. No, like, no. Just fuck off. No, not here for it. But so he needs the execution to happen so his book can have its big finale. Truman wants the execution to happen. He's not trying to get them off by any means. In the movie, they very much highlight that he's telling them he's trying to get them to go free. Just there's just no proof for that actually happening. The only proof that they do have for these conversations might have happened. So Truman only visited them in prison like maybe six times. He did not visit them nearly as much as the movie seems to indicate. I know you read the book and I didn't. I don't know if it highlights him visiting them in prison a lot. He never says how much he goes, um, that I can remember at least. There's just a lot of content from his interviews. It's like he may have only gone a couple times, but he talked to him for a very long time. They did write letters a lot. They wrote letters and uh, had phone calls and stuff, like, very frequently, but the actual in-person conversations were very few and far between. So there's, in my opinion, a really huge scene in the movie is when Perry, Calcifer, could you not, dude? I swear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is when Perry confronts Capote asking what the name of the book is, right? Where he asks Mm -hmm. over and over, like, what's the name of your book? 
And Capote had been lying to him saying he didn't have a title yet. Oh, I haven't been writing it yet. When he literally had a title he was super proud of and had been bragging about to his publisher and friends and had been writing a lot of it. Only for Perry to reveal that he read an article saying that a title was chosen. And not only that, he, you know, read a section of the book to a huge audience. Um, and so that scene was actually in- was inspired by a real letter Perry wrote in April 1964 that read, I've been told that the book is to be coming off of the press and to be sold after our executions. And that the book is entitled in cold blood. Who's fibbing? Someone is. That's apparent. The letter very much indicates that Capote had been lying to him about the nature of the book in order to get information. The movie does a decent job of highlighting the fact that Capote's working title in Cold Blood also refers to him and his research style. And what he's doing is cold by lying and manipulating Perry in order for him to write a successful book. So in a way, the title is a reflection of himself as well as his subjects. And I felt like that was something the movie was trying very hard to portray. I mean, at the end of the day, while the movie is based on a true story in the sense that Truman Capote, like, did interview these men, was besties with Harper Lee, and, you know, he did write in cold blood, police investigators they named and whatnot are all real people. The movie is overall a work of fiction. With reality, plot points thrown in there. They well, that's just, why they always say, based on a true Right, story, so they just, they filled in, yeah, they filled in all those conversation gaps and whatnot. They fabricated a lot of the cell interviews and stuff, and it's kind of a daydream of what might have happened between those men during that time. But the fallacies in the book, I find are interesting, because the book and the movie are also different. Because the movie isn't, you know, a movie of the book. It's a movie of the experience of him writing the book. Like, it's different. You know what I mean? Investigator Alan Dewey Jr. was immortalized in the book as a hard-charging detective who was strong and handsome and who toiled over the case until finally an informant came forward and pointed to the two killers and um, what's interesting is how Alvin Dewey Jr. was portrayed in the movie, in my opinion, was like, strict by the book. I don't want to work with you, Capote. You're an inconvenience to my investigation, kind of a feel. Whereas mm-hmm. it almost felt like, from what I've read about In Cold Blood, In Cold Blood is like a love letter to Alan Dewey Jr. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When in reality, a lot of what was written about him in the book isn't true. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna cover it because that's according to the Kansas, the KBI files, which stands for this Bureau of Investigation files. Okay. Anyways, according to the book, Dewey sprung to action and went by himself to the family farmhouse where they were believed to be hiding on the day of they received the tip. Dewey reportedly gleaned information from the killer's parents by telling them he was looking for their son for a simple parole violation. He didn't do that. A group of investigators went to the family's house and asked. And even then, they were like, it's probably not true. We'll just check it out, like, in a week. They waited at least full five days before ever checking out the house. According to the Kansas uh, Bureau of Investigation Files, found at a former officer's home, Dewey just didn't believe the informant that came forward. Didn't believe them. He thought that the informant was a petty crook who couldn't be trusted. 
And the whole scene with the parents and the parole violation covered, that just didn't happen. Dewey benefited from Capote's myth-making more than anyone, both professionally and financially. Capote actually lobbied Columbia Pictures to hire Dewey's wife as a consultant on the movie version for $10,000. Gerard Clark wrote a biography called Capote and claims that in the last scene of In Cold Blood, in which Detective Alan Dewey meets a friend of one of the Clutter daughters, was also completely fabricated. That did not happen. Honestly, if we were going to say uh, Truman Capote was gay for anyone, it wouldn't be Perry Smith. It would be freaking Dewey because mm-hmm. he wrote him to be this amazing man when in reality he wasn't. And um, there's this other investigator, Harold Nye, who was very prominent to the case who isn't really mentioned, which I find kind of odd. So Nye, for years, have always said that he's been, like, really upset by that and really upset with, like, the fallacies and the fame within the book in Cold Blood. In 1962, though, I love this, though. I was like, holy shit. Richard Hickok, one of the killers, yeah, <laughs> when Truman Capote came forward and said that he wanted to write a book, Richard Hickok decided he wanted to write a book about his story instead. It seemed like it was in retaliation to Capote. And his memoir was called The High Road to Hell, which was quote-unquote lost. And Richard hand-wrote 200 pages of it from his cell on death row and tried to get a deal with Random House Publishing, but they had already just signed a deal with Truman Capote and turned him down, even though he's the killer. Um, Yeah, that's I guess it's because he wrote he wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? Yeah, and as well as a couple other novels, but Breakfast at Tiffany's was the big one. So Capote yeah. found out about the memoir from none other, Alvin Dewey Jr., and promptly tried to buy the manuscript from him, which would not he would not give it up. He would not sell it. And according to the Wall Street Journal's investigation into the lost manuscript. It includes allegations of corruption by Kansas authorities in an attempt to suppress Hickok's book from ever being published. According to a statement by Michael Nations, a Houston probation officer and son of late Mac Nations, who Mac Nation was a man who was working with Richard Hickok in order to write his book. He was a man on the outside trying to like help him get his story out. Wrote, Capote was telling the story that Kansas authorities wanted told, and Mac Nations and Richard Hickok was telling a story that they wanted to silence. It makes sense now for Capote to just put Dewey in this beautiful high esteem as this, you know, amazing investigator and officer. So I found that to be very interesting and would really like to read his memoir in addition to the book In Cold Blood. Is that out yet then? So did somebody get their hands on it and it actually got published? So the Wall Street Journal did get their hands on it and they were able to read it. I'm not sure if it got published. I'm going to look it up. The High Road to Hell Hickok. 
I don't know if it got published, but there's a lot of stuff about it if you look it up. Apparently, um, since the book In Cold Blood has come out over the years and years and years, more and more and more fallacies have been like just mentioned here and there about it. Mostly about mm-hmm. um, Alvin Dewey Jr. and his part within the investigation, which leads to say, well, if that's inaccurate, what else is? I mean, Capote is quoted saying his book is immaculately factual. Yeah. Immaculately. Immaculately factual. I kind of suspect he promised, this is just my personal theory, that he promised Alvin Dewey Jr. to be highlighted as a great guy in the novel if given access to the inmates. Mm. Because in the movie, he pays him, right? That didn't happen. That didn't happen either. He didn't do that. So I'm wondering if some sort of deal was made. I don't know. My favorite side plot of the movie is Harper fucking Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird and best friend of Truman Capote. They did know each other since they were kids and their friendship did last decades. And I really love that they included her in the movie. And I mean, Mm -hmm. as as a woman, she already struggled to get her work published and it fucking shows in the movie. The two go to a lot of parties and everyone there seems to just know her as Capote's friend and literally nothing more. And no one cares to talk about her. No one wants to know anything about her. Her entire existence just seems to be tied to the fact that she is Capote's friend. Uh, Meanwhile, Capote is like the center of attention and just a socialite and just life of a party. And everyone wants to hang on to every word that he has to say. And when her book got picked up by a publisher, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a huge book, which I did read because it absolutely was required in school. A few men at one of the parties in the movie, they say, congrats on your Killing a Bird book. And she's like, not the title, but close enough, thanks, and walks away. And one of the dudes says, I didn't even know she wrote. Really highlights just how, like, little they pay attention to her. I feel like a lot of that is also because, you know, she's a woman and women were so overlooked in society, especially, you know, to be taken seriously as writers or honestly to be taken seriously as like anything. Both of our stories have that, which is sad. Yeah. And uh, and this was the 60s. Yours is the 20s. It's like 40 years later. Things aren't that much better. I mean, they're they are better, but not that much. It still seems the, you know, even the Kansas Police Department was corrupt in and of itself, even if that's not what's documented in Cold Blood. It seems to the truth, what happens in the dark will come to light. Apparently, a bunch of other murders at the time in other states and cities were trying to pin Hickok and Perry as murders for a bunch of other crimes. Yeah, I think they do mention that in the book. There's one big one in Florida and another, I don't remember the state, but there's another one for sure. And at the time, they wrapped up the case and was like, it's those dudes, they're dead now, case closed. And since then, um, (laughs) DNA came out that that's absolutely not true. None of the DNA matches. It can't not be them. Basically, the police just got lazy with their job and were like, we don't know who it is. We just are going to blame it on these guys. Lazy fucking cops. Both of our stories are about very lazy cops. Cheese, could you not? We got lazy cops and we got overlooked women. Both of our stories. It's a theme and let's like stop that theme. Let's stop that in our normal everyday society. I'd I'd, appreciate it. I'd like to think that it's gotten better at least. No, no, it hasn't. No, no. We're working on it. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. 
We should come up with something paranormal for next week. This has been very heavy true crime. <laughs> it has. It has. Um, definitely let's do paranormal things. I'm down for whatever. Honestly, I'd be down to do another cryptid episode at some point. There's so many cryptids. Super fun, and there's so many of them. There are so many of them. Honestly, if we do a cryptid episode, we have to bring Gossett on because he made me swear to him if we ever talk about Mothman, he's got to be here. <laughs> He's obsessed with Mothman. So, um, yeah, if we want to do that, I am down for more cryptids. It is super late now, and I uh, know we got to get up in the morning. So (laughs) I will let you go. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been a lot of fun. I had a lot of – I enjoyed a lot researching the subject because I also include watching movies, which we very much (laughs) love doing. Regardless of the fallacies, the movie Capote is still very, very good, and I still – very recommend you watch it uh just know that not all of it is true and that philip seymour hoffman does an amazing job playing truman capote i miss philip seymour hoffman i know thank you all so much and keep it creepy keep it creepy music by freestockmusic.com For blog posts showing visuals for each episode, you can find our blog at cotmpodcast.com. If you'd like to help support us and receive discounts and loyalty rewards, become a patron at patreon.com slash macabre. We record every episode live Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on twitch.tv slash thetigerwizard. If you can't find us on your favorite podcast app or site, please let us know and we'll fix that. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates on episodes, blog posts, and special events. And don't forget, keep it creepy.